You'll have seen or heard media reports today about Israel and Gaza or Ukraine. And we sometimes think of the media as a bit separate from the conflict itself, but it can be a really dangerous job reporting. Many, many uh, media workers have been injured or killed bringing us the news. We're going to learn a bit today about the work that goes on behind the scenes to keep journalists safe when they're running towards a scene that everyone else is running away from. Tony Loughran is a security specialist who worked for decades at the BBC and then at other news agencies around the world. And he has changed the training and the gear that's used on the ground and helped investigate what went wrong too when the worst happens. He's written about it in a new memoir called, interestingly, Zero Risk. Tony, welcome. Hi, Hilary. Thanks for having me on the program. It's a pleasure, though. Your life sounds like it's had the opposite of zero risk. (laughs) Tell us a little bit first up about the difference between blind risk and controlled risk. I think controlled and total risk in some respects, Hilary. Um, We've had a a situation really with, um, I was talking to uh, some of the journalists just recently about blind risk. And blind risk for them is is obviously going into some of these countries without minimum information, uh, minimum equipment, and, uh, you know, just not really much of a plan to, uh, to cover the story. Uh, where what we've actually got with control on the risk itself is is making sure at the end of the day that uh, that uh, some of the journalists themselves and, and including freelancers as well you know who tend to be the actual kind of the uh, the poor man's kind of journalist in uh, in, in some of these big organisations, um, but we actually make sure that they're actually kind of completely covered, and it's taken decades of, of research and development really from my point of view and, and my team. To, to get there, really. Well, when we think about the decades, I'm, I'm thinking about the decades of R&D that went into you personally too, Tony. You know, your dad asking you to try and bend nails with your bare hands <laughs> when you were turning 13. And out of school, you left the British Navy and trained to be a medic. How important was that training in preparing you for your work later in life? It was it was a turning point, very, very pivotal for me uh, as an individual because um, I just felt I was really heading for, you know, a really bad side of the track. I uh, I couldn't really you know I couldn't uh, make sure that uh, my father was happy about what I was doing. Uh, never could please him, but um, I needed to prove a point, and uh, I needed to get out of Liverpool. I needed to get some basic training, which I loved. I lapped basic training up in uh, HMS Rally down in uh, in Plymouth there. And uh, the next step for me was a huge challenge. Uh, going back to this uh, medical uh, kind of curriculum anyway for a couple of years, and and uh, having to pass every single test going really. And, you know, tell us about some of the the things that you had to do, because it's a bit different from, you know, a nice clinical setting in a hospital, isn't it? Yeah, look, I think the Navy back in those days, um, what happened was back in 1982, had this brainwave that what they would do is train some of the medical staff up to a really senior level, which is happening today, obviously, in Australia with your senior paramedics uh, going into a doctor's program. And uh, we got there, and some of the training was was pretty harsh. It was um, when I say harsh, it was actually kind of uh, cerebrally tra- challenging for me because um, I'd actually been uh, pretty dormant on my education. So all of a sudden, I was thrown into um, blood gases, cultures, uh, looking at kind of X-ray reports, uh, looking at kind of uh, what incisions to make in certain kind of places. You know, crazy things like. Um, uh, you're looking at lumbar punches and how to do it away at sea in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and uh, things like burr holes where you have to drill a hole in someone's head to relieve intracranial pressure. It was just full on. Okay, well, on that theme of things that are hard to listen to if you happen to be eating at the time, uh, you <laughs> joined a commando unit in the Royal Marines later on and the training there sounds almost impossible to survive. Tell us about the winter pass-out test, this 10-day 200k Arctic field trip. Yeah, look, I went from the commando side of it, first of all, Hillary, and uh, that was my to get my green beret. And uh, what happened is is that uh, I, I got the commando medal, which um, was the, the best student on the course, which I never even thought I'd, I'd get in my wildest dreams. 
Um, then I was selected to to be the medical cover uh, for the Mountain Arctic Warfare Carter, and I completely lost myself in this team. This team were very, very special. And um, just to give you an idea, I mean, obviously you're picked up by helicopter in the north end of Norway there uh, with all your kit. You've got literally, I had all of my kit plus all of my medical kit and uh, and more and my weapons and ammunition and everything really. And it was so brutal. And, and thrown into a helicopter, taken to a, a location. Uh, <laughs> the first thing that happened to us, we actually literally uh, got dropped by the uh, the Navy helicopter team. They were absolutely brilliant, could fly on a sixpence. Uh, but we went straight into a blizzard and a whiteout. And uh, then what happened, literally a couple of hours later, there was a, a triggered avalanche, a uh, spindrift avalanche, um, which we had to dig our team out. And there was no way you were going to get people to to come to meet you and, and you know say, there, 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 you know, back on the helicopter, dear chap. Uh, it wasn't. It was like, pick your, your rucksack up, pick your kit up, your medical kit, your weapons, soldier on kind of thing. And, and we're literally picking people out of the snow line with uh, corks of snow stuffed up their noses and the mouths and, and so on and so forth. So it was it was pretty brutal. Yeah, I love the bit where you narrowly escape falling down into the snow to your death because someone clipped you to safety at the last oh, moment. That, <laughs> yeah, that that was rec- incredible. I actually re- relived that one. Um, well, sorry, retold that one uh, at the Commando reun- Reunion probably a couple of years ago. Oh, as you do, fun times. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was kind of, you know, drinking a beer, having a chat, and one of the guys goes, and he's an, he's an Irish guy as well, and he said to me, do you remember the time when you nearly fell down the mountain? <laughs> Yes, I, I do. <laughs> and I went, funny you should say that, Billy. Uh, he was the only guy that got me out because he literally recognised that uh, I was I was suffering from hypothermia. And um, basically um, everything went blue. You know, the, the, the snow went blue, my feet, my hands, and I thought, this is crazy. What, what's going on here? It's a real psychedelic moment. And he threw an ice screw into the side of the mountain. Uh, we were tactical at the time, so we couldn't really talk uh, about what was going on, but he knew. And he threw this ice screw in, screwed it in, clipped me on, and uh, then gave me this uh, litre of tea that I drank <laughs> on the side of the mountain. <laughs> That's so British, isn't it? Have a litre of tea, that'll Crack fix on. it. <laughs> and then, then things got even worse because uh, you were picked up by a team that, you know, dressed as Russian commandos who put you through a mock interrogation. What was that like? That was... I, we, I kind of, in some respects, uh, Hillary, I knew that it was coming. It was one of those things where, you know, you, you know the routine, the format for the exercise. And uh, But uh, what happened was uh, we were literally kind of thrown, we were kind of, the helicopter arrived and the, the guys were coming racing towards us. They threw us down on the floor. Uh, then they stripped us of our weapons and everything else for that matter and our camouflage stuff. They threw us back onto the helicopter and then dropped us off of this barn in the middle of nowhere. Then they stripped all of our clothes off completely. So it was minus 28 at the time. And we were stood on this particular wooden plinth um, with blindfolds on. So, you know, we couldn't really see anybody at all. We were just literally standing there. And then what I remember is a lot of dogs barking around us as well. And uh, we knew then it was the start of the the actual, the probably two days of, of kind of, you know, two to three days of interrogation. And it was it was harsh because it's a military exercise it's it's an it's a it's a part of a pass or test sorry pass or fail test, and it's at the very end of the course and people you know everyone's been on there for nine months, and uh, I literally just you know subsumed myself into this exercise and and what happened was you put against the wall so first of all you've got twenty minutes roughly against the wall and you put a few clothes on you by now uh, in this barn, and then you're sat uh, kind of erect with your back you're not allowed to bow your back at all your hands are pulled back with your hands on your head. Dogs are still barking around you, and uh, they literally rotate you from the floor to the uh, to the to the to the wall over a period of a couple of days. Uh, but the only respite you get 
is when they pull you out and then they put you into an interrogation. So um, the interrogators are a professional team in the UK, Joint Service Interrogation Team, JSIT, and they were mock Russians, mock uh, a guy and a girl. And my first interrogation, I'll never forget it. I kind of literally, uh, again, was kind of clothes were taken off me. I was sat on a, a small stool uh, looking up at the interrogators and um, I'd actually kind of sliced my finger off a couple of, well, near to the bone uh, a couple of nights before. Uh, so it was throbbing like anything. And the, the girl came up to me and said to me, uh, look, we can help you out. We're fine. We can look after you. Uh, and I was going, cop. yeah, exactly. And uh, then all of a sudden I got the bad cop and he literally lurched across the table and uh, grabbed me by the throat and started giving me a hard time. You know, <sighs> And I thought to myself, I'm not going to get out of this. I'm going to have to really revert back to the training you're given. Well, you're only allowed to say name, rank, number and date of birth and that's it. We're speaking with Tony Loughran, whose book Zero Risk contains many stories like this. And I mean, obviously, Tony, this is some pretty solid training that served you really well at various points in your life. Let's shift to the BBC because someone rings you up and goes, this this is a guy I think we could use at the BBC to help us uh, protect our staff better. What was the culture around safety like at the BBC when you first got there? It was non-existent. <laughs> it was well, I say non-existent. There were a couple of people that were trying to uh, to lift the the game a little bit, Hillary. But I walked into a succession of um, criminal uh, cases uh, against the BBC and also against individuals as well for stunts that had gone wrong. So you know your typical Top Gear that's, that's happened recently. You know, obviously with uh, Freddie Flintoff and all these other guys. Um, that was what was happening to me really um, uh, at that time, and um, it was remarkable because. I think I joined at the right time because I, I, I could offer a huge amount in the way of investigations uh, because I had a really good analytical brain to be able to kind of pull things together. And I was I also had some very good ballistical wound knowledge as well. So even if it was a car crash or a kind of a turnover of a vehicle or an impalement, I, I, I could figure out what was going on. But the big thing that happened to the BBC was a member of the public uh, being involved in a program, uh, the Late Late Breakfast Show, where this poor guy actually was hoisted at a 180-foot kind of uh, cherry picker platform and uh, was told he was going to bungee jump out the actual top of the bucket and he literally jumped out with the bungee not attached but had put it in his hand mm. and uh, was killed and in, into the, into the, slammed into the pavement, sadly. So that was my first start into the BBC investigation side of it. And then I found out that what happened was, kind of interest in this, the department was actually called the the, uh, the the Department of Program Prevention, um, which is not a good title to have, you know, as a safety unit. Um, yeah. I know, it's awful. Well, <laughs> let's shift to the journalistic side of things because you've revolutionised the way the BBC does things. And I guess, you know, these days we're, we're much more aware of what it's like for foreign correspondents going into war zones. Tell us about some of the kit improvements that you made and what people were using before that. Yeah, look, there's a couple of things really, Hilly, that you can talk about that definitely did change. Uh, one of them was an interesting piece of kit. It was the body armour that they had, and it was so heavy that people just literally threw it to one side and said, look, I can't wear that. I'm sweating like anything. Um, I'm making myself more of a target. Uh, the colour of the body armour itself became a target. The plates they had in the body armour was steel. Okay, so if you were to fire a, a, a full metal jacket round into a, into a plate, uh, as we found anyway is the, the bullet would skim off the plate and actually uh, ricochet and fragment into someone's arm or into the neck or to the head. So it was it was pretty dangerous at the time, but it was the only thing they had. Um, so I went to a company called Cortals, and they were based up in uh, top end of UK there. 
And uh, I said, look, we need some lightweight jackets. And he said, ha, ah, we've got this fabric called um, Dyneema uh, or a Kevlar. And uh, what we can do is we can weave the jacket. We can make it so that it actually kind of does fit the individual. And I said, that's got to be done because what was happening was I was looking at investigation into some of the journalist bodies when they've been shot or blown up or whatever. And it was clear that the jacket itself they were wearing was far too big for them or too small. And they certainly weren't strapping them down at the time. So when they were running, uh, all of their vital organs were actually kind of um, pretty much displayed. Um, mm. and, and that was a problem. And then we looked at the, the armoured vehicles, which was the, the chariot of, of journalists really getting them you know, through the, the war zones as well. And again, that was made of steel. And I went back to my, my old commando days and I thought, this can't be right because we got rid of steel quite some time ago. Uh, because if you were to hit uh, an explosive was to hit the actual side of the vehicle, then steel fragments would fly around the vehicle and, and mince, make mincemeat out of people in there. So we went to Kevlar. So many stories that I wish we had time to explore with you today, Tony Loughran. It's it's a fascinating book. Thanks so much for sharing a little insight into how much, thankfully, things have changed uh, around safety for journalists, among others. You're welcome. Very welcome indeed. Tony Loughran, the book's called Zero Risk, Keeping Others Safe in a Dangerous World. Certainly he's been into some of the more dangerous parts of this world. He's a long-time security expert. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.